0: Well, good morning, officially for about five more minutes. How are we today? I hope we're good. Probably still feeling a little bit of the uh, turkey hangover. Looking forward to that fat nap this afternoon before everything gets back to normal. Hopefully you had a little bit of downtime, unless you work in retail. Um, you probably had a little bit of downtime this week. But um, I want to dive in this morning, and uh, we are in Best Gift Season, and uh, it's an incredible time at Community Faith. There's some incredible things happening. The stories continue to come in, and so it's been an exciting thing. Uh, I'll start out this morning kind of telling you a little bit of story. A couple of, a couple of years ago, my wife and I decided we we're going to go out to dinner one night. Uh, went to dinner at Gringos, you know, real fancy chips and salsa. That's always a win in our house. Um, we get there. And as we arrived at Gringo's, both of our phones started blowing up. We started getting text messages, people saying things like, congratulations, we're so happy for you, I cannot believe this is happening to you and your family, you guys are so blessed, Uh, please tell me it's true. And then finally, a close friend of mine texted me and he said, hey, when are we buying that ranch? And I was like, man, what in the world is going on? I, I, was, I was super confused. So I call him and I was like, hey man, I don't know what you're talking about. What do you mean, when are we buying that ranch? I was like, I, I'm not buying a ranch anytime soon. He goes, dude, it's all over the news. He goes, what are you talking about? I was like, I don't know. So I go and I look at the news and we live in Fairfield and there was a lottery ticket that was purchased in Fairfield by someone named Brandy, which is also my wife's name. And so everybody just assumed Brandy in Fairfield won the lottery, and it was like $14 million. And so at first, I had this thought of, oh my gosh, we won the lottery. And then I looked at Brandy. I said, you play the lottery? I didn't know you play the lottery. And so I was super confused and then quickly realized it wasn't the same Brandy. There was a difference in the way they spelled their first names. I'm not sure this Brandy even lives in Fairfield. I think she just happened to buy the ticket in Fairfield and she won $14 million. But in that scenario in that situation my mind began to race exactly like yours would in that same situation you begin to think what if it had been true though and you begin to think how would I have spent that 14 million dollars I mean that's exciting it would have been fun and you're like "Well, money doesn't make things fun I, was, I would be willing to give it a try okay I'm just gonna go ahead and throw that out there um so we started to think. so my mind began to think like yours does. And I started thinking, okay, well, I would tithe. I would give back to the church. And I would tithe probably 20, 30%. Just go ahead and give it all back. Johnny's got the free cup of coffee. I'd have the free kolaches covered for you, all right? It'd be a fun time at Community of Faith every single weekend. But then I started thinking about like, okay, I'd pay off all debt that I have. The house would be paid off. And then what would I spend it on? I'd spend it on the three R's. The first one would be the rock. Because Beyonce says, if you like it, then you should put a ring on it. And my wife needs a bigger ring because I love my wife a lot. And the ring on her finger doesn't represent all the love that I have for her. So I gotta buy her a new rock. I gotta buy that Range Rover because I just think Range Rovers are cool. Don't judge me. I don't have one and I never will. But if you have one, I would love to take care of it for you if you ever need somebody to babysit your Range Rover. Um, And then I would go buy a ranch because I love the outdoors. I love to be outside. I love hunting. I just, I love being outside and getting out of the city every now and then is therapeutic for me. And so I started thinking about that. Now, some of you, you don't think that way. You're thinking, okay, if I was to win the lottery, I'm just going to save it. I'm going to put it away. I'm going to store it up. I'm going to hang on to it in case something bad happens, in case something tragic happens. And then there's another group of you that you're going to think, you know what? If I had $14 million, I'm not going to spend it. I'm not just going to save it and stick it under my mattress at home. I'm going to invest it. I'm going to put my money to work. And you, you are probably the smartest people in the room. Um, and I wish I was more like you. But today I want us to think about that, not just in the context of money, because the reality is is all of us actually um, have the potential to be millionaires. If you think about the average income in Harris County is $58,000 a year. If you worked for 40 years and brought in $58,000, you would bring in over $2 million in that 40 years. So you do have a choice, we have a choice, how we spend, how we invest, how we save our money. But today I want us to think more along the lines of how do we invest our entire life? Because every single one of us has a unique, special lifetime that we've been given. And we get to choose what to do with that lifetime. For some of us, we're just gonna blow it. We're gonna live in the moment. I'm gonna live for today. I'm not gonna worry about the consequences of tomorrow. I'm just gonna live in the moment. If it feels right, I'm gonna chase after it. That's how I'm gonna live my life, YOLO. And there's others of us that you're like, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just try to preserve it. I gotta make it the best that it can be in case things over go bad. And so you're in the gym all the time. You're eating your vegetables all the time. Everything that tastes terrible, you're, you're, you're choosing that for your meals. Um, that's just who you are. You're all into the essential oils and I'm not cracking on any of those things. That's just kind of where some of our mindsets go. And then there's others of us who maybe have the mindset that's probably the healthiest. It's how am I going to invest in something greater? How can I invest my life, not just my money, how can I invest my life into something greater? What would it look like for us this morning to invest in something that outlasts our lifetime? What would that look like? I want us to begin to kind of think in that mindset. I want us to think into the idea of what would it look like to live risky and rich? And that's gonna make a lot more sense as we navigate this this morning. But what would it look like for us to live risky and rich? And to better understand this, I want us to look at a parable in the Bible in Matthew chapter 25. Jesus is um, in the, the peak of his ministry. He is constantly communicating truth to his followers, to anybody that will listen to the observers around him that are watching him perform miracles. And every now and then he would stop and he would pause and he would begin to communicate something that's important, not just back then, but even for us today. Look to at what it says in Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip he called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. Now we gotta pause right there and understand what's going on. Jesus is telling this parable and a parable is simply understood as something to throw along next to. It's a story that Jesus would attach to a truth that he wanted us to understand, that he wanted his listeners to understand. And so we would tell stories because our minds are captivated by stories so that we could better understand who God is, better understand God's kingdom and then how we fit into that. And so in this, first, in this passage, in this first verse, we hear about, there's, there's, there's a man who's going on a journey. He's obviously a master because it says that he has some servants. And what Jesus is wanting us to understand is that this master represents God. He represents the one who is giving away the gift. And then we see ourselves in the story as the servants, those who are receiving the gifts. Look what it says in the next verse. It says he gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last. Dividing it in proportion to their abilities, he then left on his trip. Now, it's important for us to understand the, the size of these gifts. Scholars, um, in some translations of the Bible, they refer to it as a talent. Um, what they basically are trying to get our minds to wrap around, and his audience understood this. When he said five bags of silver, when he said a talent, what he was referring to was something that would be worth 15 to 20 years worth of someone's annual wages, And so in the context of Harris County that I mentioned just a minute ago, $58,000 a year, if somebody was to receive one talent or one bag of silver, that would be worth approximately $1 million, a little more than $1 million. If somebody walks up to you and hands you $1 million, I think you're probably on board to take that, right? So he gives different amounts to different servants. To the first person, he gives five bags. The second, he gives two. And then the third, he gives just one talent. He provides them with an incredible opportunity. To invest not just their finances, but to invest their time, their energy, their resources, their opportunities, their relationships, everything. He gives them an opportunity to invest it. And what's interesting is in this passage, as he was telling this audience this parable the audience would have understood that there was an agreement in a situation like this. If someone was to trust you with their gift, there would be an agreement at the end of the time when the master was to return, where there would be this profit sharing that would take place. And so the servant would get to collect, would get to keep some of the profit as well as the master receiving some of the profit. So both are gonna receive a gain at the end of this agreed period of time. And so we can can see in the story that Jesus is trying to help us understand what it looks like to invest our life, to invest in something that outlasts our life. A couple weeks ago, if you were here, Mark finished a series called 101080. 10, and it was really pressing into uh, creating a plan and having a strategy for how we manage our finances specifically. And it was to give the first 10 per 10% back to God. It was to take the second 10% and to save that for ourselves and then take the rest of that, that 80%, and live on it with a strong plan, with having a plan in place on how we were going to spend that money, how we were going to invest that money, to enjoy that money, to enjoy what God had given us. And it's been interesting to hear some of the stories and even some of the pushback, because anytime you talk about money in the church, it gets a little bit awkward, it gets a little bit tense in the room. But what's interesting, what I want to speak into and just speak into that tension for a minute, is sometimes we get frustrated because I'm like, man, God wants 10%. Listen, God doesn't just want 10%. He doesn't just want 20%. He wants 100%. He wants everything, not just our money. He wants everything that we are and everything that we have and everything that He has blessed us with. So I want to talk through three quick moves that you and I can make beginning today in order to live a life that's risky and rich, in order to live a life of purpose, in order to invest in something that's gonna outlast our lifetime on this earth. The first move is simply this, leverage God's gifts. Leverage God's gifts. Notice whose gifts we're talking about. Not my gifts, not your gifts. Leverage God's gifts. I remember growing up, it was an exciting time when you finally got your driver's license. I mean, you couldn't wait for that day. And something weird has happened in our culture. It's not the same anymore. I don't know if you've noticed this, but I have found over the last several years, teenagers aren't as excited about getting their driver's license as I feel like I was twenty something years ago. It was it's very different. I'm like, oh, you're not. Ex- you how old are you? They're like, I'm eighteen. I was like, oh, you could just drive. No, I don't have a driver's license. I'm like, what? Like, no, my parents can just take me. I'll just take an Uber. Like, it's, it's just different. It wasn't like that though. I couldn't wait for the day that I was gonna get to take driver's ed, get my permit and then turn 16 and have my driver's license and be able to experience some freedom to go cruising up and down the main drag in the small town that I grew up in to enjoy that season of my life. My very first car was a 1979 Pontiac Bonneville. It was disgusting. It was green, it was a boat, it needed a wide load sign on the back, but I loved it. But here's what's interesting, it wasn't my car. It was the first car that I got to drive but it was my parents' car. And so I was responsible for it. I had to keep it clean. I had to keep gasoline in it. I had to change the tires when the tires needed to be changed. I had to take care of it. But at any moment, my parents could swoop back in and say, hey, we need the car back. And I would have to give the car back, but I got to enjoy the benefits of using their car. And it's similar to what's happening in this passage. The master has given his silver to his servants so that they can invest it, so they can leverage it for a return. To give it back to something, to, to, to produce something that's worth more than what it was when they received it. Now, this flies into the face of our culture. In the participation trophy culture in America, this is a little bit uncomfortable. Because in America, everybody needs to get a participation ribbon or a trophy for being part of a team. A couple of years ago, my son was playing in a baseball league, and uh, they won two games that year. Not a successful season. At the end of the season, he got a trophy, and he brought that trophy home, and I was like, What is that? And he goes, I got a trophy. And I was like, for what? You won two games. You were second to last place in the league. You got a trophy? I was like, give me that trophy. And I broke it and I threw it in the trash. And I was like, go to your room. I didn't really do that. Um, but some of you are like, man, he's a jerk. <laughs> but it's interesting because we live in that culture and I'm not trying to get into the psychology of all that. I know there's probably reasons for it that I don't even understand. But what's interesting is as we read the story, we begin to read the story and think, well, hang on a second, Wes. That's, that's not really fair. One guy got five, another one got two, and the other one got one. You see, we have a tendency to oftentimes take the focus off of the gifts that we've been blessed with, the gifts that we've received, When we're going to look at everybody else's gifts, and we're going to think, oh, you know what? He has more. She has more. I wish I had what they had. Comparison ignites discontentment. Comparison ignites discontentment in our lives. And in an age of social media, we see everybody else's life on display, but we only see the highlights. I said this a few weeks ago, but when we look at people's lives on social media, we're looking at the billboards of their life, not the diary of their life. And so we begin to compare with what we see. We begin to compare with the highlights and it stirs and fuels this discontentment in our life. You know what I think in this situation with this particular servant, the one that received one talent, the one that received a million dollars didn't probably walk away from that exchange of money discouraged and disappointed. I mean, if somebody's handing out a million dollars, I'll take it off your hands, sure, no problem. Oh, he got five, that's okay. I got, I got one mil, I'm good. But we have a tendency to begin to compare. I may not have what someone else has. You might not have what someone else has when it comes to gifts, when it comes to talents, when it comes to abilities, but you've been given what you have for a purpose. You have what you have based on your abilities and God is wanting you to use those gifts, those talents, those abilities, those resources. He wants you to leverage them for something on purpose. Look at your neighbor and say, you are gifted. That was kind of awkward and uncomfortable, wasn't it? I promise you this though. It wasn't as uncomfortable in here as it was for the ones watching online, sitting in the coffee shop right now. And they're like, hey, you are gifted. And the person across the table is like, what is he talking about? Now, if that ends up in a first date, you're welcome. Um, but listen, my point is, is that no matter how old you are, how young you are, how far you're sitting from the stage this morning, where you are in your stage of life, young or oh, whatever, every single one of us are gifted. You are gifted. You have gifts and abilities and talents and resources that are unique to you. And God is challenging us. He is calling us out this morning to leverage those for something, to produce a return in a way that outlasts the life we currently live on the earth in this moment. For some of you, your talents might be singing You know, I love to to be in this place, in this room. I mean, we just experienced an incredible time of singing and songs, and there are some incredibly talented musicians on this platform every single week. I I appreciate every single one of them, and I don't just appreciate them because they can sing. I appreciate them because they're real people, and I know that none of them stand on this stage so that they can be honored, so that they can be glorified, so that they can be recognized. They stand on this platform because they want to leverage the gifts that God has blessed them with so that he can receive the glory so that God can receive the glory. They're just like you and me, they're normal people, but they're leveraging their gifts. You have gifts, some of you have the gift of hospitality. You just have this unique ability of hosting someone in your home, hosting someone at a party somewhere, and making every single guest and person that's been invited to feel incredibly special. And the challenge this morning is that we would leverage that type of thing so that God would be seen, so that God would be glorified. For some, you have the gift of faith, You just have this ability to say, hey, you know what? We need to do this, even when you can't see how it's gonna happen. Some of you have the gift of pessimism. I think that's me sometimes, because then people talk about the gift of faith, and I'm like, no, that's not gonna work. That's not gonna work. I like to think that it's wisdom, I think everybody else thinks it's pessimism. Some of you have the gift of wealth you've had success. Some of you have the gift of leadership. You just are naturally gifted at leading people in a consistent direction towards something that's great. And people wanna follow you because you are for them. You're not all about just the mission, you're about the people that are on the mission with you. You have that unique ability, that unique gift, and God is calling us out today to leverage that for his good, for his glory. I could go on and on and on. Maybe it's time. Maybe you're in the retirement stage of life. Listen, you are gifted and that time is a gift. And if you are breathing and you are listening this morning, then you are gifted and you have an opportunity to leverage that for God's glory. And so we leverage God's gifts as we, number two, live on purpose. Leverage God's gifts as we live on purpose. Every single one of us in the room desire to have a purpose. We want to feel like we're connected to something that's bigger than ourselves. We wanna live a life of significance. We want our life to have weight. We want our life to have some glory. And so we seek out purpose. We wanna live for something significant and strong. I was reading several years ago, and I couldn't even, I tried to go back and find this this week, but I'm I'm just kind of going off what I remember. But I remember reading an article about a dog breeder in England and he was breeding English pointers that are used for hunting. And so you'll be out in a field and you're walking through these fields hunting birds or rabbits or foxes or whatever and these dogs would be walking with you and when they would sense that there was an animal or whatever it is that you were hunting, the dog would freeze and he would point directly at where that animal was so the hunter would know where it is. Kind of sounds like cheating, I know. But that's what the dog would do. And it was interesting because he said that somebody asked him one time, well, how long will the dog stand there and just point at the, 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 the animal that you're hunting? And he goes, as long as I let him. I'm like, man, that's boring. (laughs) He's like, well, doesn't the dog ever get tired of that? Doesn't the dog ever just like decide to just run away and go do something else? He's like, no, because the dog is doing exactly what it was created to do. And when the dog's doing whatever it was created to do, there's nothing else it would rather do. You see, every single one of us were created on purpose. There's a reason that some of you have dogs that like to retrieve things and bring them back to you. And they'll do it over and over and over to the near point of death because it's what they were created to do. They're a retriever. And you're like, okay, Wes, what about my cat? I don't have anything for your cat. That's where the illustration breaks down. (laughs) Scripture does describe the enemy as prowling around like a roaring lion, and a lion is a feline, and so I'm just saying you might want to be sleeping with one eye open if you have a cat, because I do believe that if your cat was big enough, he would eat you. Um, So next time you see your cat sitting over there in the corner licking his lips, that's what he's thinking. He's like, man, I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was, (laughs) but do you see what I'm saying? The master in the story has created an opportunity for these servants to live on purpose. And what what Jesus is trying to get our attention to this morning is that we've been blessed with gifts. We've been given gifts by God himself to leverage those on purpose. And it's a purpose bigger than any single one of us in this room. It's a purpose bigger than just the name community of faith. It's a purpose that involves declaring God's glory, making God's presence known on this earth, making God's presence known in our lives. This is the purpose that he's calling us to. And sometimes we get it backwards, we get confused, and we begin to think that our gifts are our purpose. And then when the gift's not there anymore, the opportunity's not there anymore, we get discouraged and we think, oh man, I blew it. What's my purpose in life? This is where moms and dads who think that their purpose is to be a mom or a dad, gets discouraging when the boys and the girls grow up and they leave the house and you begin to think, well, what's my purpose now? My kids are gone, I can't be a mom, I can't be a dad anymore. This is what happens when you think your purpose is your job And you get laid off or you retire and you begin to kind of wrestle with that discouragement of thinking, man, that was my purpose and now I don't have it, what do I do it? This is why athletes who get to the top of their game and they think that their purpose is to be an athlete, to make lots of money, to be a public figure and then all of a sudden they get older and their body begins to break down and they can't do it anymore and they get discouraged, they get depressed because they thought that was their purpose but that was their gift that was to be used on purpose. And every single one of us have been called to live that life of purpose. Even when the circumstances, even when the seasons, even when our lives see see times of change, the purpose never changes. But we have to choose to live for that purpose. In the story, for the sake of time, I'm not gonna read all of it, but in the story, if you go back and you read it, the, the three servants come back. The master comes back from his trip and he gets together with the three servants and the first servant comes to him with the five bags of silver and he's turned the five bags of silver into another five bags of silver. So he has 10 bags. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. I mean, he is, he is excited, he is proud. This is a good moment. The second guy comes back and he's got his two bags of silver and he's turned it into four bags of silver. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. And then the story kind of takes a weird turn, a disappointing turn, because this third servant comes back and look what it says in verse 24. Verse 24. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, master, I knew you were a harsh man harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid, we're gonna come back to that, I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here is your money back. But the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant, If you knew I harvested crops and didn't plant and gather crops, I didn't cultivate. Why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, take the money from the servant and give it to the one with the 10 bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. And they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. And then look at this last verse. Now throw this useless servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now I'll just be honest with you this morning. Over the last couple of weeks as I've been preparing for this time to share this message, as I read through this parable, I really wanted to skip over this verse. And I almost did. For days I went back and forth. But I think this verse is important for us to recognize. You know, it's interesting that This servant finds himself in a place of condemnation, not because of something that he did, but because of something that he did not do. You know, oftentimes when we think of wickedness or we think of condemnation, we think, well, they must have broken the 10 commandments. He must be a liar. He must be an adulterer. He must be a thief, some sort of criminal. He has clearly done something that has pushed him out. He is wicked. And it's attached to what we've done, where we failed. But in this story, it has nothing to do with what he did. It has everything to do with what he did not do. It's interesting that this servant brings everything back. Let's go back to verse 24. It says, And the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man. In this moment, we see something exposed. We see fear. We see that this servant was fearful of the master, he had an inaccurate view of the master. And what that resulted in is him holding on to what he had, holding on to the gift that he had been given. Unwilling to do anything with it, unwilling to put it to work, he just clung to it himself. He brings it all back, 100%. He didn't bring back a, a suitcase full of IOUs. He brings it all back to the master, yet he finds himself in a place of condemnation, separated from the master. Why? Because there was fear in his life. And that fear was a result of an inaccurate view of God and, or an inaccurate view of the master and an inaccurate view of himself. You know, fear will make you do some crazy things. A couple of years ago when Hurricane Harvey was going on, we were getting tornado warning after tornado warning after tornado warning. You remember, all the phones would continuously just continue to go off. I've had my um, alerts off ever since Hurricane Harvey because they didn't stop. Well, my wife hates storms. She hates thunderstorms. So the idea of a tornado coming into town, she's, she's freaking out. And not only is she freaking out, but she's making sure everybody else in the house is freaking out and doing whatever they can to be safe because that fear begins to control her. And so I asked her permission and my boy's permission to show you this picture. This is my wife and my boys in the laundry room of our house for pretty much the entire day on that day when Hurricane Harvey hit. I asked my boys, I said, hey, can I show that picture? And they're like, Cam said, dad, I go to school with people that go to our church and they're gonna see that and they're gonna say something to me at school. I was like, hey, listen, this isn't about you. It's all about your mom. She's dominated by her fear. And it's impacting not just her life, but your life. And you're like, Wes, where were you at in this whole scenario? Um, I wasn't wasn't right here trying to protect my family like a good husband and father should be doing. I was outside with my cell phone trying to capture funnel clouds coming out of the sky. My point is that fear can control us. And so when you see this man, you see that he had an inaccurate view of God. He thought God was a hard, or he thought the master was a harsh man, collecting what wasn't his, taking up what, what wasn't his, what maybe somebody else had worked hard to get. He thought that God was just gonna rob him, that God was a greedy God. As the master has illustrated to us, it's pointing us to an inaccurate view of God and it controlled what this man did. But not only did he have an inaccurate view of God, he had an inaccurate view of himself. Look at what it says in verse 25 again. He says, I was afraid I would lose your money. Do you see this? Immediately he begins to reflect on himself and he thinks, man, I'm not qualified for this. I can't handle this. I'm not able to take care of this gift that you've given me. So I'm just gonna hang on to it. I'm gonna to cling to it. I'm gonna hide it away and I'm not gonna leverage it. I'm not gonna have any purpose behind it. I'm just gonna let it be. And the master responds with harsh condemnation because he was not willing to invest the gifts that he had been blessed with. You know, I don't think there's a lot of people in the room today that if I invited you on the stage and I handed you a million dollars, you're gonna go home this afternoon before you take your fat post-Thanksgiving nap and bury that million dollars in your backyard. Nobody's gonna do that. Now, you might save it, you might do something else with it, but nobody's gonna bury it. It sounds ridiculous. But I do think what Jesus is speaking into is that tension that every single one of us wrestles with in the room. We have been blessed with things, energy, time, resources, abilities, talents, finances. And he's speaking to that tension. How are you using it? How are you leveraging it? And what are you leveraging it for? Because there's something significant that we've all been called to leverage that towards. And we've got to push back the fear. You know, I think that this particular servant thought maybe that he had more time. And so he waited. He paused. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. You know, sometimes we do the same thing in life. We were thinking, man, I'm not in the right season It's not time to, you know, we're we're not ready to have kids yet. We're not ready financially. We don't have enough money stored up. We need to pay off some debt before it's the right time to have kids. And so you just kind of wait. And there's really never a good season to have kids because they're always more expensive than you think they're going to be. And as they get older, they just cost more. And so it's like, well, there wasn't really a great season for that, but we went ahead and did that anyways. And so, you know what? Maybe I'm just waiting for that perfect season to change jobs. I need to make that career change. I know that it's what I'm supposed to do, but I'm just waiting for that perfect season. Maybe you're waiting to figure out that perfect time to bring the romance back in your marriage. So you're waiting for that moment where Marvin Gaye's playing in the background, the candles are lit, you're at that exotic resort across the world, and you're like, that's when the romance is going to come back. But that perfect season is never going to come. And so you're going to have to figure out a way to make that romance happen in the middle of crazy, in the middle of chaos, And teenagers, if you're sitting next to your parents right now, I'm sorry, you probably just threw up in your mouth a little bit thinking about all that. But my point is is that perfection oftentimes fuels procrastination because we keep thinking someday, someday, someday I'm going to do that. Someday I'm going to start that. Someday I'm going to start that spending plan. Someday I'm going to begin to process what a career change might look like. And oftentimes for many of us, someday always turns out to be never. Someday turns in to never. So you have to take what you have now and do something with it, which is the third move. We've got to reduce our excuse. Reduce your excuse. I don't know if you've ever been pulled over. I'm going to assume many of us in the room have been pulled over by a police officer at some point in our life. And it's interesting how we handle that scenario. We all handle that scenario a little bit differently than others. For some of you, you're the argumentative type. I may or may not be like that. And so when he pulls you over, you're like, officer, I don't know why you pulled me over. I wasn't doing anything wrong. And he's like, hey, listen, you were going 80 in a school zone backwards without your seatbelt on, Snapchatting the entire time. You should go to jail for the rest of your life, but I'm just going to give you a ticket. And then you still want to argue. You're like, no, 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 no. Hang on, you, you missed it. Some of you are like the super, super emotional wreck when that officer walks up to your window and says, ma'am. Sir, you were speeding and you just like you just melt because you're a rule follower and you can't believe you have been caught doing something wrong. You have disappointed yourself. You've disappointed the police officer. You've disappointed your family. It just never stops. You just keep going. And there's some of us that we just respond as like, uh, really, a, a speed limit? I didn't, I didn't know. I'm so sorry, officer. I didn't realize there was a speed limit. I thought I could go 85 down to 90. I've done it for years. <laughs> I heard some actual statements from people who have been pulled over by police officers recently. Let me share some of those with you. I'm sorry, officer, I was just trying to burn the carbon off my spark plugs. Officer, I know I was speeding, but I am low on fuel and I was in a hurry to get to the gas station. Well, clearly he doesn't realize that the faster you go, the more fuel you burn, so that was probably a terrible idea. Officer, here's a $100 bill that says I wasn't speeding. You can take that, store that away for a convenient time somewhere. The last one, I'm sorry, officer, but my wife is about to get pregnant and I need to be there when it happens. (laughs) I appreciate our law enforcement, our first responders. My father is one, and so I am super grateful for them. But it's interesting, yeah, we can clap for that. I can be the king of excuses. You know, it's interesting in the passage, the master says, hey, if you thought I was this way, if you thought I was harsh, then why didn't you just take my money to the bank? Why did you still hang on to it? You should have at least put it in the bank and it could have provided some sort of return. What he's doing is he's calling out the excuse. And I have a tendency to make a lot of excuses. And so maybe the last little nudge we need this morning is simply recognize the response of the master in the story. Let's go back to verse 23, this last verse. The master said, this is to the first two servants. He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. You you have been faithful in handling this, notice, small amount, $5 million, small amount. So now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. You know, when we leverage God's gifts for God's purposes, and we push back the excuses, we see the same response from our father in heaven we see an affirmation, we see a promotion and we see celebration. We see an affirmation of well done, you've done good. Well done, good and faithful servant. You know, for many of us in our culture, we spend our lifetimes trying to hear that well done. Waiting to hear, hey, I'm proud of you. And for some of us, we've exhausted ourselves trying to get that pat on the back from our father. You know, it's interesting. A lot of people can congratulate me. A lot of people can tell me that they're proud of me, but there's something different when my dad says, Wes, I'm proud of you. Wes, I'm thankful for what you did. I'm, I'm proud of how you handled that situation. When my dad says that, it's different. And I don't understand why that is, except for maybe it's God's way of helping us recognize that there's a father in heaven who desires a relationship with us. And when we leverage what he's given us for his purposes, he looks at us and he says, that's my boy. That's my girl. I'm proud of you. There's affirmation in that and it's life-giving. There's promotion in it. And I don't understand exactly all that that means, except that I do know that when we get to heaven one day, there's gonna be more responsibility for those that have handled things and, and leveraged things and lived on purpose on this earth. As we get to heaven, we'll be responsible for even more. But I don't think we have to wait till we get to heaven. I think that even on this Earth, as we leverage and we live on purpose, He begins to promote the opportunities, as you give back, as you tithe, as you create a spending plan, as you leverage your time to volunteer, as you leverage the opportunities and the influences and the friendships and all the things going on in your life, on purpose for his purposes, I believe he begins to increase those opportunities. Why? Not so that my name can be known, not so that your name can be known, not so that even community of faith would be, be known, but so that the name of Jesus would be known in our city and around the world. There's nothing else more important that our world needs to hear than the name of Jesus and why that matters to them. And he's invited us to leverage our gifts. And as we leverage our gifts for his purpose, he affirms us, he promotes us, and then he wants us to celebrate with him. And there's nothing better than celebrating with our father. So what are your gifts? And what do you need to do today to just say, God, how do you want me to use these gifts? How can you leverage those gifts for him? Maybe it's volunteering to be a part of the Roberts Road Elementary thing going on this Friday. To be a part of hundreds of volunteers who are gonna come alongside each other to get to know each other, to laugh together, to serve together, to probably sweat together because it's December and it's still hot in Houston. But to be together to serve our community, to leverage our time and our energy and our emotion into the community. Not so that we can get recognized, but so that God would be recognized. Maybe it's what God is trying to put on your heart as far as contributing to the best gift offering coming up in two weeks. An opportunity to leverage our resources on purpose so that his name would be known in our city and around the world. What is God calling you to leverage this morning, this week, this next year? I would say that if it's something that's not important to you, it's probably not God calling you to leverage it for him. He wants us to take what's most valuable and say, hey, God, it's yours. Use it, use it, use everything that I am. I wanna invest my life into something that lasts longer than my life. I wanna wrap our time up together this morning by letting you hear a story from a couple of my friends here at Community of Faith, who God has done an incredible work in, and a lot of that is because many of you have leveraged your gifts, your generosity, for God's purposes. So take a look at this video.
1: When I turned eight, my mom sold me to the cartel for a lifetime supply of drugs. I didn't understand anything, what was going on. Sometimes I felt dead inside. I didn't know. Early on, I started going to drugs. I was, on, I was on meth, I was doing weed, I was doing coke, like I was doing almost everything, just to numb the pain. And um, I've been killed almost too many times to count. I've been shot, stabbed, been kidnapped. And like I'm. Pr- I just remember praying and hearing myself talk God has a better plan for me. So I'm going to get out of this. I don't know when, but I know.
2: Pretty much my whole life, all I ever wanted to be was a mom. And so I was married for several years and we tried to have babies and went through multiple fertility doctors and treatments and a lot of frustration. It was a roller coaster ride and I really feel like, you know, it caused our divorce and just the strain of not being able to have children.
1: I was in CPS for since I was 15, all the way up to my, close to my 18th birthday. I want a foster home setting. Like I was tired of the structure, like facility type structures. Like it wasn't working for me. It just made me more angry. I didn't have no freedom. So Hope Rising called and said they're interested. So then I had an interview. And after that, about two weeks later, I moved in. At the
2: Meadows. I had the realization that I was probably never ever going to be a mom and that was really hard for me and I was angry. I had a huge hole in my heart. I had been putting on my prayer request asking the Lord to use me for a greater purpose and at that point I was volunteering a lot. I was doing a lot of different things. I remember watching a, a video about Hope Rising when they first introduced it to the church and I was drawn to keep going back for about a year and a half volunteering like twice a week and just grooming horses and brushing horses and bathing horses and just being in that environment knowing that i was doing something and then finally they in december of 2017 they had their first foster um, daughter and i met her
1: we met when i first came to the hope rising house and they asked me do I want to come help set up the other uh, foster house I was like sure I'm I'm at the house I have nothing to do I want to come help
2: um, Faith was the first one she actually had come over here when I was getting the house ready and little did she know she was painting her own bedroom
1: and I remember asking I was like I want to come live with you like I really want to live with you she said maybe that can happen you know my heart was like oh yes this would be the perfect place for me
2: When. They asked me, Would you ever consider being a foster parent? I didn't hesitate. I didn't, you know, say I have to get back to you or anything. I could hear a Mark in my head and I said, I'm all in. I just felt that this journey was exactly what God had intended for me all along. He didn't give me babies, but He was going to give me girls to foster. And it all made sense.
1: I was a dropout, eighth grade dropout. I didn't think I was ever going back to school. I thought that I was gonna end up dead on the streets or living on the streets for the rest of my life. Just gonna be a dropout. And now having a mom that actually cares and a family that actually cares, that wants me to do better for myself. This is my senior year. I'm going to graduate going to
2: college, never thought I'd go to college. Had I not made those sacrifices that I made, I wouldn't have the life that I now live. One, I would have never had the opportunity to to be a mom to these girls that have come in and out of my life and I've been able to love on them, share gospel with them.
1: When I first moved in with my mom, we went to First Thursday, it was the first time we went. She was like, I want to take you on to my church, and I was like, okay. My journey with COF has been amazing. I gave my life to God there, I have been baptized there. They have COF, if it wasn't for COF, I wouldn't be as close to God as I am now.
2: Hearing my girls sing about their love for the Lord and the words that they're singing and going to church and watching them raise their hands and sing their hearts out and and praise Jesus. Those are sacred moments for me. And then to have faith become my adopted daughter is unbelievable. I'm going to have grandchildren someday. So the sacrifices were well worth it. And... As far as like a, a, a dream life or any of that, that doesn't really exist because I tried that on my own. And you know, thinking that I'd lived a life that was uh, privileged and had nice cars and had nice things, material things. And life is really simple now. It's richer than I could ever imagine, for sure.
0: There's an incredible passage in Hebrews chapter 11 where there's a description of story after story after story where people of faith took a risk, did something that they didn't have all the answers to right away, but they did it because they were being obedient to what God had called them to do. And at the end of chapter 11, going into chapter 12 and verse two, it says this, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So we're fixing our eyes on Jesus, why? Because he's the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand throne of God. The reason I read that verse is because, you see, I think there's something that happens in us when we understand the reality of that. We fix our eyes on Jesus because of what Jesus did, and Jesus set, his joy was set, his joy was you, his joy was me, His joy was us. We are his joy. And so we did what was necessary so that we could have a relationship with him. And as we begin to know that and as we begin to understand that, and we begin to take hold of that personally, we begin to live a life like Michelle lives, like faith lives. And I know the last thing either one of them want is recognition. Michelle has zero desire to come stand before you and say, hey, look what I've done. But she understood what Jesus did. She wasn't worried about being successful. She was only worried about being obedient because she understood the joy that only comes from him. And we can chase after that joy in so many different directions, but she found it in Jesus. And as she found it in Jesus, she wanted everybody else that she comes in contact with to experience that same joy. That's the life that God's calling us to live. He's calling us to leverage everything that we have, our whole life, for his purpose, so that he would be known, so that he would be seen, so that lives like faiths can be impacted. You know what's cool? Is faith's life is now impacting the lives of other people. It's an incredible thing. And they're here in our service this morning. I'm super proud of them, I'm not gonna call them out, but it's the life that we've all been called to live. It's not perfect, it's messy, it's frustrating, but it's the best life so I want us to close this morning with communion. It's an opportunity for us to remember what Jesus did so that we could experience joy, so that we could have joy, and so that we could share that joy with the world around us that desperately needs it. He commands us to do that, to remember his body that was broken on our behalf, his blood that was poured out in my place on the cross that day. So if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, even if it's your first time to community faith, you'll notice there's tables around the room with candles lit, you'll find the bread, you'll find the cup there. The band's gonna play this morning. And I want us to take an intentional few moments to remember Jesus. Maybe ask Jesus to open our eyes, to refresh our minds to what he did on our behalf. If you're sitting in the risers, our volunteers are gonna bring the bread and the cup to you. But as the band plays this morning, as we close out this service, let's remember Jesus, and then let this song be the anthem of our life, not just our experience here this morning. Let's take communion together. Can you pray with me? God, we love you. We thank you that you came after us. We thank you that your truth is still real and relevant and perfect for us. And I pray that you would give us courage and boldness to go out and live what we've heard today. God, that we would trust you as a good God who has good things for his kids, for his children. And That our confidence would rest in you and not in ourselves and that you would make yourself known in us and through us in the world around us. We trust you with that and we believe confidently in that because we know that that is your desire.
1: So thank you for this time. Thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.